us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just wave and get their attention, and they'll put one in your hands. It'll be marked right to our passage that we're studying from. And then please, 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 if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. The old saying is, you show me uh, someone with a Bible that's worn out, and I'll show you a Christian who isn't, or something like that. And it's very, very true. Make a good friend out of that Bible. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he, that is Jesus, was still alive, how that that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went, and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath... As the, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I like the attention to detail. Uh, he took a seat. Uh, imagine being an angel and being given that privilege to roll that stone away. On that day, and behold, and his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he is risen. As he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And so go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, met them saying, Rejoice. And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for being able as Christians to join in this celebration that is going on in every corner of the world today because your gospel, the truth of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and what it means not only to human history and the uh, great uh, nuclear bomb that his resurrection uh, set off in the spiritual realm, Lord, and how it uh, encompasses and influences the whole world, even yet today. But, Lord, we thank you that that news of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection, as big as the universe as it is, Lord, it also is something that fits right into our heart and does something important and eternal in us. And so we thank you, Lord, for the resurrection and what it means to us. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit now 
and allow us to explore it in a beautiful way, Lord. And we ask that you would add the witness of your Holy Spirit to our time in your word. We pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now that hardly knows there is a resurrection or maybe doesn't know that there's any significance to it at all, much less what it has to do with their life. And we pray, Lord, for each one of them. And we ask that today would be the day that you, their creator, would speak right to their heart and right to their mind, Lord, and cause that light to go on to help them to realize that everything about that death and that burial and that resurrection represents the greatest needs that are in their life as well and your provision for those needs. And that today, Lord, they would surrender to you and enter into the life, Lord, that we've been created for, the life that allows us to make sense of the world around us and the world inside of us. Bring, Lord, each one into that relationship today, we pray, and we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus has been crucified, and following his crucifixion in our text here, two men, one known as Joseph of Arimathea and another a secret disciple by the name of Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, they have requested permission of Pilate to remove Jesus from the cross and in order to bury him. And Pilate then granted them permission for them to do exactly that, and they took Jesus' body and they laid it in a tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. It was cut out of stone, we're told in the Gospels. And that tomb, to cut anything out of stone, is, especially without power tools, this was all done by hand. Uh, you had to be a wealthy man in order to uh, produce something like that and to be able to afford such a tomb. And uh, it was Joseph's tomb and obviously intended one day to uh, carry his own body and that his own body upon his death would rest there as well as uh, a tomb large enough for the rest of his family probably uh, to be buried there as well. When a tomb was carved out of stone, there would be Typically, there would be enough room carved into the rock for a body to be laid out fully. It could lay out outstretched in that tomb. And again, often, uh, if a person was wealthy enough, they would then carve out additional space to accommodate uh, future family members that would die as well. It would become a family tomb. And then, uh, in order to secure... Uh, the tomb, a large stone would then be rolled across the mouth of the tomb. Don't picture like a great giant boulder that uh, would be uh, rolled up against it. It was something a little more sophisticated than that, a little more refined than that. They would take what would be equivalent in our thinking to think about what it looks like in our minds, uh, like a great millstone. Uh, and made out of stone, very, very large, however large it needed to be to uh, close up and cover the opening. The opening had to be big enough for people to get in and out of uh, by hunching over to then enter, and that they would then carve out a comparable stone that would then be rolled in front of it to the opening in order to uh, secure uh, the, the tomb. It would have been round, it would have been flat, and... Uh, 
shaped very much like a wagon wheel, only uh, solid stone, again like a millstone. And then at the immediate entrance, the outside entrance to the tomb, they would cut a trough or they would cut a groove uh, in it uh, in order at the exterior there, the entrance to, and cut it at kind of a slight uh, incline and in order to allow a stone to be put at the upper part of the trough put in place, and then it would roll down in that trough. It would have an ending spot. These people were tremendous craftsmen, so that when that stone then rolled down that trough, it would come to the end of the trough, and it would be perfectly positioned now to cover uh, that opening. And by virtue of the size of the stone, the weight of the stone, the stone would have been at least 6 to 12 inches uh, thick, What it meant is that once that stone was put in place and rolled into place, it secured the tomb. Uh, Not only did it keep uh, wild animals from coming in and, and, you know, destroying the bodies and all, but because of the weight of the stone and the difficulty of ever moving it, you'd have to move it up the trough and then then to gain access uh, to it. And because of its weight, that would be enormously difficult. Uh, This ensured that both the body and whatever valuables might have been buried with the loved one, that it was secure against any kind of theft or any kind of intrusion or tampering. And so those are the the circumstances of Jesus' burial. He's been laid in a tomb. He's been wrapped in linen and spices. And a stone has been rolled across the opening of the tomb in order to secure it. But the interesting thing as we read the passage is that none of this was sufficient to alleviate the concerns of the Jewish religious leaders at the time. And you notice in our passage this haunting concern of the Jewish religious leaders, principally the chief priests and Pharisees, uh, that they were living with uh, as they gave some thought to all of this. We're told in verse 62, on the next day, and that refers to the day following Jesus' crucifixion. So in other words, Jesus' body has already laid within the tomb for a night. And that wonderful three-day, three-night retreat that Jesus was uh, accomplishing uh, in Hades before he emptied out at the end of the three days and three nights, Abraham's bosom, the announcement of himself to the Messiah as Messiah, to a generation of Old Testament saints who were saved and looking forward to the coming of Messiah, that wonderful three days and three nights, all of that is in full swing. We're told in verse 62 that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. And I love this scene in the Bible. You think about their concern that they're dealing with here. I mean, the day before, everything had gone their way in the crucifying of Jesus. They had demanded his crucifixion. Pilate had granted them their demand. And yet here they are. They then went to sleep that night, confident that they had eliminated the great risk that Jesus represented to all of their power and their traditions and all of their wealth as they had turned Judaism into a money-making operation. And yet when they wake up the next day to a man, individually they cannot rest. 
They wake up, all of them, still thinking about Jesus. He is still troubling them. And they have this nagging sense that for all of the appearance of victory the day before, that somehow they had merely won a battle but lost the war that they had been waging against Jesus. And each one of them, to a man, had this nagging sense that the cross had not solved their problem, but that it had potentially only created a bigger one for them. And now they are concerned about the possibility of Jesus' resurrection as they speak of it there in verse 63. And it was a legitimate concern on their part because Jesus had repeatedly spoken of the fact that he would one day die at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem, but that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. He had spoken it to the disciples, and he had told them, as Matthew records it in chapter 16, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Jesus didn't tell them this once or twice. He spoke this to them repeatedly. To the Jewish religious leaders themselves, Jesus had declared the same thing. They came to him one day and they said, uh, show us a sign that we may believe in you. And they were asking for him to do some miracle in order that they might believe that he, his claim to be the Son of God and to be the Messiah. It's a crazy kind of request that they're making of him, an additional miracle or an additional sign, because the length of and breadth of the land of Israel were filled with signs, filled with miracles, testifying to the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah and the Son of God. You had the lame walking. You had the blind seeing. You had the deaf hearing. You had people who had demons cast out of them. And all of these were not like this little once-in-a-while kind of a thing that word went out about it. He filled the whole land with changed lives, all of it bearing witness to the fact that he was exactly who he declared himself to be. But in Jesus, in his grace, he resolved and, and yielded to their request and gave them one more great sign as an evidence to the fact that he was and is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. He said, it's an adulterous, and a gener an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And he said, no sign will be given unto it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. He was testifying of his resurrection uh, to them, and he had declared it to them. All of this, of course, was in fulfillment of the Holy Spirit's prophecy through King David in Psalm 16, which declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would die, indeed he would, but that he would not remain dead long enough for his body to see corruption. In other words, resurrection. David put it this way in Psalm 16, verse 10, For you, speaking to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol, and then he turns his attention to the Messiah, nor will you 
allow your Holy One, that is the Messiah, to see corruption. They were concerned about Jesus because they also knew that resurrection happened to be one of his specialties. And that was something that they were very familiar with, as was all of the population of Israel at the time. He had raised the son of the widow of Nain, and the word went out throughout all of the land. Here is someone who is raising people from the dead. He had raised the 12-year-old daughter of a ruler of the synagogue by the name of Jairus. Jesus later in his ministry went into Bethany, and he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and Bethany being just a stone's throw away from Jerusalem. And in the course of all of that, as, as uh, Lazarus's older sister by the name of Martha comes to Jesus, as he, arrives, as he arrives in Bethany, her brother is now dead and been dead for four days, and they begin the conversation, if only you had come earlier, you could have prevented this, so, and, and so forth. And Jesus declared to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me Though he may die, he shall live. And then significantly, and whosoever lives, that's every single one of us in this room, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And in doing so, this declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life, he was essentially declaring that he had complete authority over death. He did not say that he knows the way to everlasting life. He did not say that he knew the secret of everlasting life. He didn't point the way to everlasting life. It isn't even Jesus saying that I'm able to perform resurrections. He declared that everlasting life and victory over sin is found in him, and they are accessed by virtue of a personal relationship with him. In other words, Martha, resurrection, victory over death, and everlasting life, they're not found in some future event, in some future time, or future place, or day. They're found in me. They're found in me right now. Today they're found in me. I'm not merely some teacher about resurrection, some teacher with a fascination for everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am singularly, I am the author of resurrection and the source of life because I alone have victory and authority over death. Resurrection is essentially the interruption of death. It is the interruption of death's uninterrupted up to this point march through human history. And true life is that life which cannot be interrupted by death. It is a life that God gives that death has no power over. And Jesus was in essence saying, I am able to interrupt death interrupt its reign, and I am able to give a life to mankind that can never be interrupted by death. And so these Jewish religious leaders now, they gather together to voice their concerns to one another, and they come up with this plan for protecting themselves against Jesus' declaration that he would rise again on the third day. But once again, they realized it would require Pilate's involvement again. And so their request of Pilate, verse 64 
was that he would authorize a Roman guard. And a Roman guard, when you put a Roman guard of four soldiers someplace guarding the entrance to anything, it wasn't just that there were those four Roman soldiers there. They stood representing Rome. They represented the entire authority of the entire Roman Empire. It was really something for soldiers to be placed somewhere in the authority of Rome. And so they requested that he would authorize a Roman guard, again with the full power and authority of the Roman Empire behind them, to then guard against any possibility of the disciples of Jesus coming by night, stealing away the body, and then falsely declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so their request was in order to design to eliminate any possibility of that happening. And their concern is listed there in the end of verse 64, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. In other words, the report concerning his resurrection, they thought, would be more damaging to them than his claim already had been to being the Messiah and the Son of God. I think it's very, very interesting to notice that verses 63 and 64, and you notice specifically in verse 63 that here they are, the enemies of Christ. They declare concerning him, while he was still alive. They speak of his life in the past tense. They recognize him to be fully dead at this particular point. And here you have proof provided from the very mouths of the enemies of Jesus against any kind of later fantasy that might arise in the hearts of mankind in contending that Jesus did not actually die upon uh, that cross, but that he had merely fainted or he had merely swooned, and as his body was removed from the cross after the beatings, after the crucifixion, and they laid his body then on the cool stone of the coolness of that tomb, that somehow uh, he revived, and all of this is known, of course, as the swoon theory. And yet even here within the biblical record concerning Jesus' enemies, even these men would not attach themselves to a, a theory such as that. They plainly declared him to be dead. Another amusing aspect to all of this is that there is their concern that the religious leaders had that the Jesus' disciples were capable of this kind of a conspiracy or this kind of a plot. And their concern that the disciples were capable of, the, of this was completely unfounded. And uh, they're giving Jesus' disciples a lot more credit than they deserved. At this point in time, when the religious leaders are standing before Pilate, uh, the disciples of Jesus aren't even thinking about Jesus' resurrection. In fact, when the women came to the tomb on that Sunday morning, they came not to find an empty tomb. They came fully intent upon finding Jesus' dead body at the end of three days and further anointing it with spices on, on that day. Here in Matthew, we see, as we read in chapter 28, verse 7, the angel of the Lord comes on the scene of Jesus' resurrection, rolls the stone back, not in order to let Jesus out, but in order to allow people to come in and see that the tomb is uh, empty, and so that the women and then later the disciples, when they come to the tomb, they could become witnesses of his resurrection, of the empty tomb, and, uh, and then 
in order to send the women then to inform the disciples of his resurrection. They weren't even thinking about resurrection. They weren't even thinking about a conspiracy. They didn't even come to the tomb. You would have thought these guys, after Jesus told them over and over again he's going to rise on the third day, that on that Sunday they would have had three alarm clocks ready to go. They're all sleeping in the same room, and they're going to get there before the sun comes up because we're going to see this great event that Jesus declared would happen concerning him, and not one of them came to the tomb. They had to wait until the women came to wherever they were hiding out and let them know, and then they came to the tomb. Later that evening, when Jesus appears to all of them in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, where they were gathered together in fear, uh, after Jesus departed from that uh, post-resurrection appearance to them, Thomas, who wasn't present, but he arrived after Jesus had left, when they spoke to him excitedly of Jesus' resurrection, Thomas wouldn't believe it, and he demanded that unless I see his hands in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is astonishing when you think about what they'd seen and been through, and this is their kind of spiritual condition, the condition of their faith. Mm -mm. These disciples, God blessed them, but they weren't even remotely capable of thinking about, much less pulling off, what these religious leaders were worried about them pulling off. They were not concerned at all with any attempt at deception. They were only concerned at this point with their own self-preservation. They make the request of Pilate, and Pilate then granted them their request, verse 65. But he did so with the added statement, go your way, Make it as secure as you know how. In other words, secure that tomb as best as you know how to secure that tomb. And he not only offers them the guard that they've requested, but he then makes all of the Roman soldiers available there in Jerusalem at that time. And there were many, many Roman soldiers that were uh, there in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, he invited the Jewish religious leaders, you take as many of them as you think that you need for the task, and he left the management of their entire affair up to them. Take as many as you think you need to guard against a false report of his resurrection. Now, I think that this statement of Pilate reveals that he was either amused with them or he was fed up with them at this point. And I don't think that Pilate was in a very good mood at this point. And I certainly don't think he was amused with the Jewish religious leaders on this particular morning because he told them, go your way. And the original language, the phrase, go your way, it's three words in English. It's one word in the original language, and it literally means to lead under. The idea is somebody or something seeking, sinking out of sight. And he was telling them to get out, to disappear, to go away. And at this point, Pilate is completely fed up with them. And Pilate knew what they had done to him on the day before. He's a very sophisticated leader. Uh, he was understood power. He understood how to gain it. He understood how to hold it. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to manipulate power. And on that day, he realized he got used. 
and he got manipulated, and he was fully aware of the fact that what they had done in just cleverly pressuring him and manipulating him in ordering Jesus' crucifixion the day before. He knew that they had delivered Jesus out of envy, and over and over again on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate went out to declare to the crowd in Jerusalem that he could find no fault within the man, and each time he, they, that he went out and made a defense for Jesus, the demand was made by the religious crowd, led by these religious leaders, that Jesus be crucified. And sensing himself, knowing fully that he was being pulled into a trap that he didn't seem to be able to uh, resist almost and how clever it was and how powerful it was, he desperately desires to wash his hands of the entire affair, but they would not let him do it. And you can be sure that none of this sat any better with Pilate the day after the events than it did the day before. And in essence, Pilate was declaring, I'll supply you as many guards as you deem necessary to secure that tomb. You take as many of them as you need so that on that third day following this man's death, you will not have me, his disciples, or anyone else to blame for what happens. And it's almost as if Pilate understood that these religious leaders have embarked on what is called a fool's errand. And a fool's errand speaks of something that has no hope of success. And he realized that they had no more chance of stopping this resurrection, if that's what Jesus intended to do, of making a liar out of the Father, out of the Son, out of the Holy Spirit, than these religious leaders had of rising up early one morning at the time of sunrise and stopping the sunrise with a wave of their hands. Make it as sure as you can. Have fun stopping what is impossible for you to stop. And then undeterred, verse 66. They then proceeded to make the tomb as secure as they knew how. They set not only a heavy Roman guard over that tomb, but then they took and they sealed the tomb. They took ropes that would have been uh, you, you, it, adhered to the, the stone that was across the opening, would have been adhered to it with wax. Uh, official Roman seal would have been placed upon uh, the, the cords in order that, you know, you, punishable by death if anybody tampers with even the cords, much less with the tomb. And how successful was their, were their attempts? I want you to notice how troubled heaven was by the Roman guard and by the sealed tomb. Again in verse 28, now after the Sabbath, or chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath is the first day of the week began to dawn. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it, and his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear and became like dead men. And things turned out worse than they had imagined. Here they are. They thought that their biggest problem was the possibility of a false report of Jesus' resurrection, and now they've got a bigger problem, an actual resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Bible teaches, and it's a wonderful truth that God proves from one end of the Bible to the other, 
that God is even to make even able to make the wrath of man to praise him psalm 76:10 surely the wrath of man shall praise you and God certainly did it here and here these enemies of Jesus thought they would provide proof against his resurrection but instead all they did is ended up proving providing proof for it And they wanted to eliminate any possibility of the disciples of Jesus coming by night, stealing the body away, then falsely declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. And with their guard, they had effectively removed for all of human history. That is an explanation for the empty tomb, leaving only an actual resurrection to explain the empty tomb. And the seal and those guards established the fact that if the tomb was really found empty on the third day, then the only thing that could explain it would be the fact that Jesus must have risen indeed from the dead. And little did they realize that they were proving the fact of the resurrection of Jesus beyond controversy, not only for their hour in human history, but throughout all of human history. During every trip that we take, to Israel, and we've been, had the privilege of leading 13 groups from the church to Israel through the years, one of the sites that we visit is the garden tomb, and it is always the highlight of a trip to Israel. And the garden tomb is just a stone's throw away from Golgotha, from Calvary outside the gates there in the old city of Jerusalem. The tomb that is found in the area of the garden tomb is a tomb that matches the gospel's description of the tomb that Jesus was buried in as it's described in the Word of God to perfection. And on that tomb they have hung a wood-carved sign which carries the message of Easter. And it hangs morning, noon, and night, 365 days a year at the opening of that tomb. And it, in the... It, the Uh, the sign, the wood-carved sign declares, He is not here, He is risen. And it's a wonderful thing to sit in the area of that garden tomb and to watch people come from all over the world and enter into that tomb. The line is always there, always there, people in line, to then go in, take their pictures, witness the empty tomb for themselves, and it is fascinating. A trip to Israel is one of the most glorious pictures of the diversity and the beauty of the body of Christ is we'll one day see it in all of its uh, diversity in heaven, every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every kind of human being that you can think of, every kind of human being imaginable is in that garden tomb and going inside of that tomb. And you see how far-reaching the gospel has been as people are there from every part of the world. And I watch them, and I find a quiet little place to sit. There's benches there. And then I watch our group form their line. And then to watch these people that I love and I care about as their pastor and as their shepherd go in and then witness the empty tomb and then to come out of that tomb and to realize that they have become themselves personally, one more witness to the emptiness of that tomb, one more witness in human history to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. But there's an even greater 
witness to the resurrection of Jesus than visiting the tomb personally in Jerusalem. And that is to be born again by the Holy Spirit, to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord this morning, to come to God at some time in the course of your life. And why not today? Today's the only day you have. You don't know that you'll have another day. But when a person comes to a point in their life and things get quiet enough around their life, sometimes it takes a catastrophe to do that. Sometimes a great failure on our own part where we have either disappointed others or we have disappointed ourselves. But whatever the circumstances, where all these long years of our lives go by and we're not willing to give God any consideration or the Bible or the death of the burial or the resurrection of Jesus or the gospel or anything about God. And then one day, God, who is so patient, someone can find themselves in a room like this and then say to God, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. And I've been less than perfect every single day of my life. And I believe that you are so holy and you are so pure that but one sin in my life would separate me from you in a relationship with you, the relationship that I've been created for. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And I believe that he not only died upon that cross, but that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior that pleases you. And I believe that that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I turn from my own self-will and my sin and my own direction and self-control of my life. It's called repentance. And I turn from all of that that has disappointed me and disappointed everyone that I know, and I turn to you, God, and I give you my life, and I ask that you would use my life, all of the rest of this life and all of the life to come to glorify yourself. And when a person thinks that, they feel that, somebody wants to communicate to that, God, that to God the greatest miracle that can happen in human history, it's not the recovery of sight to the blind or lame walking, the greatest miracle that can occur in a sinner's life, and that's all of us is then that God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit will then come into someone like you and me. And now I'm born again by the Holy Spirit, and I have a supernatural capacity for relationship with God, the relationship with God that I have been created for. And when you do so, this risen Jesus will come into your life in the person of the Holy Spirit and he will bring a life with him that you could only dream of, that you could never produce upon your own. Bring a power to live a life that looks like him, to provide us with a will to live that kind of life 
to bring within our lives this resurrection life and this power that only He can bring, providing us with that power and providing us with a quality of life that we would never otherwise know on our own. And it is the changed lives of God's people within this room and within this community and all around this world that represents the greatest witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a greater testimony to his resurrection than even the empty tomb in Jerusalem. There is no other explanation for my life than that this gospel is true and that this spiritual birth is true. He has led me as a, as a Christian and every Christian into, again, a quality of life that we would never otherwise know. This is not mind over matter. This isn't for half of us in the room even seeking God when he broke in on our lives. The diversity of the stories that could be told about how he got our attention and brought us into a relationship with him. It isn't psychosomatic. It isn't somebody tapping into some kind of spiritual teacher or guru that just happened to connect with you and now it leads you into something noble. We know better than that as Christians. We know that our sin had a hold on us. Our guilt had a hold on us. We know every single day that we wake up in the morning, we have a privilege of living a life that we could never live on our own or walked ourselves into or provided to ourselves. We know for a fact that the only explanation for it is that Jesus is risen from the dead and he lives inside of us. And it's a funny thing about the world. You can take someone who's been the worst sinner in the world. I remember listening to one preacher. It might have been Harry Ironside. He was doing meetings or something in the Midwest, and he was doing this series of meetings, and he declared the night before that the next day he was going to teach, uh, the next message he was going to teach is, he said, I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to reveal the greatest sinner in whatever city of Oklahoma he was in. The place was packed. Everybody wanted to know who the greatest sinner was in, in the city. Now I've lost my complete train of thought related to all of that. But the quality of life that is ours, what he's come into, the mess he has cleaned up, the hope that he has brought into the hopelessness of our former life, the beauty of that salvation, the impact of that death and that burial and that resurrection within our lives. In all of this vein, I love the old song, and I was raised for a time in my youth in a Bible-believing and teaching church. And it's the old song, He Lives, and it speaks to this very fact of our lives as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first stanza goes like this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I know, as a Christian, that He is living, whatever men may say. And that's the witness of every Christian in this world because a miracle has happened in our lives. And it'll do the same miracle in you. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. 
I know that He is living whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I love all of the theological significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But what I love most about his resurrection is that my life has become a personal witness to the greatest event in human history in the light of the greatness of the need within sinful man and within this fallen world. And it is the only explanation for the quality of life that I get to live as a Christian every single day despite all of my failures and my shortcomings or all of my trials and all of my difficulties. And that witness, that testimony to Jesus' resurrection that is a part of the life of every single Christian can become the same in your life as well. Now my former thought came back to me, talking about miracles for today. Usually it's a full hour out. Oh, now I forgot again. No, I haven't. It's a funny thing in this world, isn't it? Where a man and a woman or a woman can live just the worst life. Just leave an absolute trail of destruction behind them. And yet when they show up at home, or at work, or at school, or in their neighborhood, or whatever club they're a part of, and they announce, I'm a Christian now. I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I've chosen to follow him. That the world, even people that don't know Christ, realize something different is going to happen here. And there's a willingness not only on the part of God, but so often in people that don't know the Lord yet and have even been the victims of the sin of such people to accept the miracle that God will accomplish in a person's life. And why? Because the world has seen it over and over and over and over again, how God changes lives. There are hundreds of millions of Christians in the world today, alive all over the world today, who've experienced the very same thing that I'm talking about and that you have experienced as well. And if you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, all of that and more is waiting for you. Forgiveness, 
to be freed from your guilt, a wisdom in God's Word. Now you're not waking up every morning making every decision for yourself, but God is now going to lead you in life. Here is all of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection power, a living hope. How valuable is hope alone in this world? Where are you going to find hope, let alone a living hope, a hope that has an answer for death, a hope that can withstand death? And Christ is the one who gives it, and all of it's found in a personal relationship with God and in the receiving of everlasting life. Don't trust in any salvation or any Savior or any Messiah or any guru or any philosopher who has not also conquered death. And only Jesus has. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life, about death, about everlasting life, but he then conquered death and hell, and he added them to his keychain. As John, the Apostle John, saw Jesus in his eternal glory in heaven in Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus spoke to him and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and hell. When I was a little boy and I went to elementary school, I had a fascination with keys. And janitors were my heroes. <laughs> I mean, here he comes. And he's at Irene M. Snow School, and he's got a set of keys that look like if he went overboard in a boat, he'd die before he could get those done. But I thought to myself, what rooms he is able to get into that none of the rest of us can because a key represents authority. It represents authority over a lock. It represents authority over a door. It represents authority to then lead people into the room on the other side of that door. And Jesus is the only one who has the key to death and to, to hell. And because he, he, because he has everlasting life, because he possesses everlasting life, it is only because of that he is then able to give it to others. You must possess it in order to give it to others. And Jesus possesses it, and he offers it to you today. So if you don't know the Lord today, I could take 10 minutes and hang you over hell and talk about the horror of that. I could try and beat you up. I could yell at you. I've done a bit of that through the years. But we're all adults in this room. Is there something about God's assessment of you that you don't know about yourself? and bear witness to every single day that you're a sinner? Is it so terrible that the end of your search in life that you would come into contact with a God who is so good and so holy and so pure that but one of our sins would separate us from a relationship with him? But that this God would love us so much that he wouldn't leave the final word in our life to be that separation but send his son at great expense to himself, the only one who is sinless as the son of God, 
that was qualified to die on the cross, to die the death that we deserve to die, but we're not qualified to die for the forgiveness of our sins. But he was the one that was qualified and able to do it. Is there anything irrational about it at all? Is there anything to be afraid of at all? You're a thinking person. Look at the world that we live in. Is it getting better under the collective wisdom of man? It's not. Look at your life. Is it getting better under your collective wisdom? Is there a multiple personality? I don't know. It isn't. You say, I don't know, I think I'm a little bit smarter than I've ever been before, and I think I'm a little more this than ever before as I'm getting older. All right, well, let's just talk about your body. No one to decline on every front. Death is an enemy. And until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was marching uninterrupted through human history. And it hit a very significant speed bump on that day. And so for you, I just leave you with careful consideration of the gospel, how it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. And is it so inconceivable that he is the Savior that pleases the Father and that that is the salvation that pleases heaven? I don't think that it is. And if you'd like to make Jesus your Savior and your Lord today, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and then pray with you. And then you can leave this room today to spend all of the rest of this life and all of the life to come as a witness and a testimony to the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I won't put you in a headlock, but I beg you, please, if you have never done so, make today the day of your salvation. Let's pray to stand together, and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the power of the gospel. As Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we as your people, such a small little tiny portion of the body of Christ, even in this city, much less the world, we let you know, Lord, today that we are deeply and unspeakably thankful for the power that is within us because of Jesus' resurrection, the presence of you by your Holy Spirit within our lives, and that you have made our lives a personal witness to the greatest miracle in human history, the resurrection of our Lord and of our Savior. We bless you, Lord, for making it possible, and we bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.